Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Jihad Abbasulim of the American Friends Service Committee, who discusses the long-term violence suffered by the people of Gaza that the world often doesn't see. David Turnbull of Oil Change International, who talks about an important new report from the International Energy Agency that for the first time calls for an end to new fossil fuel development worldwide. And Rosalind de Leon Minch, an industrial hygienist with the National Nurses United Union, who explains why her union opposes the CDC's new relaxed COVID guidelines on mask wearing for Americans who've been fully vaccinated. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Months before the February 1st military coup in Myanmar, telecom and internet service providers installed $4 million worth of intercept spyware that allowed the army to eavesdrop on its critics' communications. According to a Reuters investigation, the spyware was put in place before the civilian government, led by Aung San Suu Kyi's National League of Democracy, was overthrown. The decision was undertaken by former army officers in the Ministry of Transportation and Communications. With the spyware, Myanmar's military has the ability to listen in on phone calls, view text messages, and track the locations of users without the assistance of telecom or internet companies. Similar intercept powers are used by many Western nations in criminal cases, but often with legal safeguards, which don't exist in Myanmar with its long history of military rule. During the early days of the coup, according to Reuters, soldiers broke into data centers across the Southeast Asian nation and slashed internet cables, in some cases holding workers at gunpoint. The army has shut down the internet nightly and targeted Facebook which is used by many activists to mobilize opposition to the junta. When opposition to the coup grew in March, the military cut off access to data centers, leaving the nation without access to the Internet. Critics fear the Myanmar army is planning to launch its own version of a sanitized, censored Internet, similar to China's digital Great Firewall. During the right-wing media and political frenzy over a Central American migrant caravan moving through Mexico in 2019, two U.S. immigration lawyers were questioned by counterterrorism officers as they entered El Paso, Texas, from Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. The lawyers, Taylor Levy and Hector Ruiz, represented the family of a girl who had died while in the custody of the U.S. Border Patrol. A Border Patrol intelligence report published after the interrogation speculated without any evidence that asylum attorneys were seeking to profit by collecting transit fees by moving migrants through Mexico and that Antifa may have been involved. ProPublica reports that the Trump administration used the secretive tactical terrorism response team inside Customs and Border Enforcement to intimidate lawyers, journalists, and political activists along the U.S.-Mexican border. Documents revealing the operation were published by the Santa Fe Dreamers Project, a public interest law firm where Ruiz works. 
an ACLU attorney maintained that the whole thing is COINTELPRO for dummies, referring to the 1960s U.S. government spying program. Among the progressives running in the primary for Manhattan District Attorney is a Palestinian-American lawyer who wears a hijab. 35-year-old civil rights litigator Tahani Abushi successfully sued the New York City Department of Education for failing to protect vulnerable children and currently represents 21-year-old activist Dunya Zaire, who was violently shoved by a NYPD officer during a Black Lives Matter protest last summer in Brooklyn. If she prevails, Abushi will control one of the most powerful district attorney's offices in the country, becoming the first woman and person of color to hold that position. According to The Nation magazine, the Manhattan DA is a major driver of mass incarceration in New York City. Abushi has identified 40 crimes she would refuse to prosecute, which would dramatically reduce the number of people in jail. With the retirement of Cyrus Vance, Progressives have high hopes of winning the Manhattan DA's office as reformers have won recent DA races in Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and St. Louis. But the primary race is crowded with eight candidates. Manhattan DA Vance is currently leading the criminal investigation into Donald Trump's financial crimes, a job Abushi would take over if she should win the June 22nd primary and general election. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After 11 days of Israeli airstrikes and Hamas rocket fire ended by a tentative ceasefire on May 21st, the number of Palestinian deaths in Gaza totaled 248, among them 66 children and 1,900 wounded. Israel reported that one soldier and 12 civilians were killed, including two children, along with hundreds of injuries. This is the fifth conflict involving Israeli bombing of Gaza and rockets fired into Israel since the election of the Islamist political party Hamas in 2005. Gaza, often referred to by Palestinians living there as the world's largest open-air prison, is just 140 square miles, but home to some 2.1 million people. One of the most densely populated territories in the world, the people of Gaza have been subjected to a harsh Israeli blockade that's created shortages of food, medicine, electricity, and an unemployment rate of over 41%. The recent conflict has severely damaged Gaza's already crumbling infrastructure, including the bombing of six hospitals, a cutoff of clean water, and the closure of sewage systems. Your reporter spoke with Jihad Abu Salim, Education and Policy Associate with the American Friends Service Committee's Palestine Activism Program. Here, Jihad, who's originally from Gaza and whose family is still living there, talks about the urgent need to end the demonization and dehumanization of the people of Gaza. When we talk about violence in Palestine in general, uh, and in Gaza in particular, there is no before or after. 
um, after spectacular violence that we see on TV with bombs dropping and people, you know, murdered in mass and uh, these scenes that uh, get the attention of the international media, after this spectacular violence ends, people still experience other forms of violence. The Gaza Strip is a small territory, densely populated with two million people, the majority of whom are refugees. They live in eight refugee camps in very difficult conditions. The Gaza Strip as a territory cannot afford, does not have the sufficient resources to guarantee the physical, material, uh, and economic well-being of this large number of people. On top of that, the Gaza Strip has been under blockade uh, for the past 14 years. And when I say blockade, I mean a system, a regime of restrictions uh, imposed by the state of Israel that uh, enforces limitations on imports and exports that prevents people from uh, being able to move freely. Thankfully, my family wasn't harmed, but, you know, I'm talking here about uh, loss of life. However, you know, I was just talking to my sister, and for me, she said something that really, like, was really hard for me to hear. She said, I am biologically alive, but I am dead from the inside. My sister is 21 years old. She will be 21 in November. She already experienced four wars in the last 10 years. Think about that. Think about the levels of trauma experienced by children, by young people, by everybody. The amounts of bombs that have been dropped, the scale of bombardment, the brutality of the attack has been severe. So, you know, these military operations, these aggressions that Israel launches, they, they just intensify an already ongoing process of violence that is being poured on the heads of people in Gaza who have already been living under blockade, who've already been uh, isolated and separated from the rest of the world, uh, who have already, you know, lived uh, on six to eight hours of electricity a day, uh, who, you know, don't have access to clean or fresh water. We're talking about 96 to 99 percent of Gaza's water resources are unfit for human consumption. So I really urge your listeners, when we talk about Gaza, when we think about Palestine, violence does not begin or stop with these moments of spectacular bombardment. Violence continues. It's, it's there. It takes many forms. Um, and Palestinians experience it on a daily basis. Jahad, I did want to ask you about uh, the Biden administration was very hesitant to call for a ceasefire, although a ceasefire now has been in place and things could break down at any moment. What is it that the United States government, the international community, the United Nations, what can be done to change this horrifying pattern of wars every few years that kills so many in Gaza, as, as well as Israel, too? Um, there's so much that needs to be done. I think the priority for, uh, uh, is to hold Israel accountable, to stop giving $4 billion of U.S. taxpayer money to uh, the state of Israel is to stop providing diplomatic and political cover and legal cover for the state of Israel. Israel only think, Israel believes that it can get away with killing civilians, with seizing land, with stealing people's property. 
because they know that they have this impunity and they know that they have the support of the United States. However, you know, I, despite all the, the grim reality that <laughs> I personally experience, we have been witnessing really significant changes in the United States. A lot of young people um, are coming, are speaking out, a lot of celebrities and a lot of politicians. And it's no longer political suicide for American politicians to criticize human rights violations and to work to stop them. So I urge your listeners to check out the No Way to Treat a Child campaign, a campaign that uh, tries to advocate for members of Congress to sign on the HR 2590. Remember this number, 2590 uh, bill, which, uh, which calls for conditioning aid to Israel. This is what we can do in the U.S. There's so much we can do, especially because it's U.S. taxpayer money that can be uh, redirected uh, to improve education and services. Flint doesn't have access to good water. Americans, um, you know, a lot of communities in the United States are in more need for this kind of taxpayer money that goes into supporting this regime of occupation and, and brutal suppression of Palestinians and their lives. That was Jihad Abu Salim, Education and Policy Associate with the American Friends Service Committee's Palestine Activism Program. Find more analysis and commentary on the deteriorating conditions in Gaza by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In mid-May, the International Energy Agency released a report which for the first time called for an end to new fossil fuel development worldwide. The IEA's Net Zero by 2050 report, issued last week, said that investors should not fund new oil, gas, and coal supply projects beyond this year if the world wants to reach net zero emissions by mid-century and meet the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change, staying within a 1.5 degree Celsius rise in global temperature. That's the limit beyond which climate catastrophe would likely ensue, with impacts from sea level rise, massive storms and droughts, beyond what the inhabitants of Earth can comfortably survive. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with David Turnbull, Strategic Communications Director with the group Oil Change International. Here he talks about what a breakthrough this report is for an agency that formerly gave cover to the fossil fuel industry to continue expanding, and what it's likely going to mean for the future of fossil fuel exploration and extraction. The International Energy Agency is an agency that was actually set up in the 1970s in response to the oil crisis. And it was uh, set up by a number of oil-consuming countries uh, to help them uh, manage through the oil crisis of the 1970s. And since then, it has evolved into a modeling and sort of analysis agency that has really billed itself as the preeminent energy authority in, in the world in terms of modeling future energy scenarios and looking at um, world energy consumption and, and outlooks. Um, every year, it puts out a world energy outlook, which is a major report that looks ahead at the future of energy 
and a lot of uh, governments and decision makers and businesses and investors use that report as a basis for their decisions on an energy future. A lot of them look to the world energy outlook of the International Energy Agency as a, um, a guide or a point of information on what our future looks like. And so it's a really critical agency. Um, it's not officially tied to the UN, but it is accountable to the governments that are a part of it. Um, and there's a number of them. Some of the, the bigger countries in the world are a part of it. And uh, they, they run these analyses. So it's not exactly a radical organization? <laughs> not in the slightest. It has consistently been seen as rather conservative with respect to analyzing or projecting renewable energy growth. It's conservative in the way it has um, essentially supported uh, the investment in fossil fuels and suggesting that that was a necessary part of our energy outlook. So that makes this report even more interesting because the key finding is that we can't have any more fossil fuel infrastructure beyond what we already have to have any hope of staying within a 1.5 degree Celsius warming, correct? Yeah, more or less. Um, this report that was just out recently is the first time that the IEA has looked at modeling a scenario that really aligns with the aggressive goals enshrined in the Paris Climate Agreement from 2015. This is the first time that they've really looked at what our energy future would look like in a scenario where we try to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming. And their conclusion is one that we actually at Oil Change reached about five years ago, which is that we cannot be investing in new uh, oil and gas development, and we need to be leaving coal behind as quickly as possible. They are saying that the oil and gas in currently producing fields is more than enough to meet our energy needs as we quickly transition away from those fossil fuels. We cannot afford as, as a global community to be investing in new fossil fuels. David Trumbull, Will this report impact financing for fossil fuel projects, such as Line 3, the tar sands pipeline that's just like the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline that President Biden stopped on his first day in office? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, any infrastructure that's being built to incentivize new oil and gas development would not be in line with what the International Energy Agency has suggested with this recent report. You know, the rationale for stopping the Keystone XL pipeline was that it didn't fit in a climate future that President Biden envisions. And line three, the reasons are exactly the same and bolstered by this IEA report. The press release from Oil Change International also said the report had some flaws. Can you talk about those? You know, as with any of these sorts of reports, there were some shortcomings. Um, so as ever, the IEA seems to continue to underestimate the growth of renewable energy like wind and solar. They see a leveling off of that growth after a few years, after 2040. And, you know, a lot of analysis shows that there's no reason to believe that growth should level off at that point. And we should see it continue to grow uh, quite dramatically. And so that's one area where we're concerned. And what that then results in is an over-reliance on things like carbon capture and sequestration to allow fossil fuel 
energy production to continue. And we also need to see them really center this scenario, this new analysis in their flagship publication, the World Energy Outlook, which comes out in the fall every year. Um, that World Energy Outlook is the publication that a lot of investors and governments use uh, to guide their decision-making. And we need to see this net zero report, this report that shows that new fossil fuel investment is inappropriate at the center of the World Energy Outlook. That was David Turnbull, Strategic Communications Director with the group Oil Change International. Learn more about the International Energy Agency's Net Zero by 2050 report by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As coronavirus cases and deaths across the U.S. declined amid coast-to-coast vaccination efforts, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, issued new guidelines on May 13th that fully vaccinated Americans could participate in most indoor activities without wearing a mask. However, the CDC's guidelines still call for wearing masks in crowded indoor settings such as buses, planes, hospitals, prisons, and homeless shelters. The CDC's announcement was made as the seven-day average of daily COVID cases in the U.S. was over 36,000, compared with more than 71,000 in mid-April. And the seven-day average of U.S. COVID deaths was 618 per day, down 9% from a week before, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. Your reporter spoke with Rosalind DeLeon Minch, an industrial hygienist with National Nurses United, the nation's largest registered nurses union. Here she explains why her union is opposed to the CDC's new guidelines based on what they believe is faulty science, posing a danger to public health, while supporting a robust public health program that uses multiple measures to control the spread of the coronavirus. CDC's latest uh, guidance that says vaccinated people no longer need to wear masks, avoid crowds, um, get tested or isolate after an exposure um, to COVID-19 unless they develop symptoms was based on incomplete data. And NMU has uh, posted a scientific brief. Um, We also held a press conference explaining the science that show that multiple measures are still needed to curb the current pandemic. And also, it was quite surprising because, well, first of all, we know that no vaccine is 100% bulletproof, right? And while vaccines are certainly uh, an important public health tool, right, they are not uh, enough by itself to combat COVID-19. Um, and uh, the latest data based on the CDC, only 39% of the U.S. population have been fully vaccinated, which means that there are still a lot of people who are not yet vaccinated. Children under 12 cannot get vaccinated right now. Babies can't get vaccinated right now. 
And we also don't know whether or how much uh, these COVID vaccines protect those who are immunocompromised. So the CDC's guidance placed vulnerable people like children, like babies, like immunocompromised um, individuals at greater risk for COVID-19. And, you know, we're still in a pandemic. And this is, you know, the deadliest pandemic that we've seen in a century. And there is still a continued high number of COVID cases across the country. More than, you know, 32,000 new infections are reported every single day. And according to the CDC's data, nearly 90% of counties have moderate, substantial, or high transmission. And that's a really big number. You know, it's important to note that while it's certainly lower COVID cases that we've had, you know, when you compare it to, you know, say January, which is good. I hope it, you know, keeps going down as we increase vaccinations. But I think it's important to also note that not only are the COVID cases still very high um, reported every single day, but there's also been a decline in weekly testing during the past four months, 33% reduction in weekly testing, which really creates blind spots for us to effectively respond to the pandemic. Rosalind, I wondered if you would address the issue of motivation here. Was it economics, politics, or was it designed to put more pressure on people across the country to get a vaccine? I don't know if perhaps this was their way of trying to show people Um, who are kind of on the fence about getting vaccinated to try and encourage them and say, this is how great the vaccines are. You know, they're working really well. And so if you are fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask. To answer your question, I think relying on the faulty science, the science that they cited are not yet peer-reviewed. There's a conflict of interest from some of them. Relying on that kind of science will not increase vaccination rates, but you know, providing extensive public education and making vaccines truly accessible for working people and underserved communities will. To go back to my point of only 39% of the U.S. population have been fully vaccinated, when you break that down and look at you know, the disparities among vaccinated people, right, you know, Black and Latinx and other people of color have been vaccinated at much lower rates compared to white people and compared to the proportion of the population. The CDC's guidance really increases uh, essential workers' exposure to the virus. And we know that most essential workers are people of color who have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, right? While at the same time, there are disparities in who's been vaccinated. That was Rosalind DeLeon Minch an industrial hygienist with the National Nurses United Union. Learn more about why the Nurses Union opposes the relaxed CDC COVID guidelines by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on Verdon Square Radio in Summit, New Jersey, WLNX in Lincoln, Illinois, KRBX in Boise, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.